And now, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4, and if you remember, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And over the last several weeks, we've been working our way through this series of eight visions that really, at their heart, remind us of that very truth, that the Lord remembers. Uh, God has a perfect recollection of his promises to his people, and 70 years in exile don't make God forget. An unfinished temple, unfinished city walls, that's not enough to make God forget. Even uh, the rebellious, stubborn, hard hearts of his people are not enough to make God forget his promises that he has made. He is perfectly faithful even when people are not. And in this single night, he has given Zechariah a series of eight visions. Eight visions that concern his people Israel in that time and then extending into the future. And last week we covered the third and the fourth visions. In the third vision, we saw this promise of a rebuilt Jerusalem, but it was unlike anything that the people had seen, anything that the city had seen in its history, and that includes now. It's a city that overflows with uh, people and with livestock to the point where walls aren't enough to contain it, but that's not a concern. A city without walls would normally be in a very precarious position, but this city is still a place of peace and safety. It's still a refuge because God himself will dwell among his people once again. He will protect it. He will preserve them, and he will be in their presence. What a remarkable promise. And then that fourth vision was of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed in filthy garments. At his right hand, Satan, the accuser, pointing out his defilement, pointing out the fact that he was unworthy to be there, and the Lord rebuking Satan, the Lord covering his high priest with clean garments. And we saw that this is Joshua who bears the people's sins into the presence of the Lord. In his filthiness, in their filthiness, Satan rightly pointing out that they were unfit to receive God's blessings, completely unworthy to be in God's presence. But the Lord will redeem them, not because Israel's worthy, not because they're good enough, not because the people will somehow clean themselves up, but because he has chosen them like a brand plucked out of the fire, and he will cleanse his people. He will silence their accuser, and he will purge the stain of sin away from them, removing it, he says, in a single day. And at that time when Israel is purified, not only for their sake, but for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of the nations, the nations will call upon the Lord. They will join themselves to Yahweh in that day, and so he will be the people, the God of the nations, even as he maintains Israel and Jerusalem as his prized, precious, treasured, unique possession. And today we're going to continue through the next three uh, visions. We are going to get through three today, I promise. We have to, (laughs) otherwise we're not going to finish. Today we're going to continue through the next three prophetic pictures that God gives us in Zechariah, beginning in chapter 4. And so if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to read the first several verses to set the stage for this first vision. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it each and with seven lips on each side of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become like a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Let's pray. 
Lord, once again, we uh, come to a series of visions, pictures that are designed to reveal truth, but uh, that have a way of spawning different meanings and different interpretations and maybe even uh, controversy and fighting among your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to approach these rightly, that we would approach them humbly, not on our own understanding, but seeking yours. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. On our own, we bring stubbornness, we bring opinions. On our own, we bring the pride that says, I have to be right. Lord, bring us the clarity that only comes through the enlightening of your spirit. And Lord, help us not only to understand, but to put these things into practice in our life. Remind us that you are the holy God who not only holds the future, but who has designed each of our days to bring us eternal good and to bring you eternal glory. We worship you, Lord, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so it is football season, and I am a Miami Dolphins fan, which is usually kind of mad. This year we're doing all right. Um, I am not the kind of fan that has to watch every game. In fact, over the course of a season, I will see exactly zero games live. I tend to be a little busy on Sundays. That's neither here nor there. What happens is typically I will wind up looking at the score on my phone, and then at some point during the week, I'll watch the highlights on YouTube or whatever. Now, last Sunday, my Dolphins had the Good Friday game, or sorry, Black Friday game, entirely different Fridays. They had the Black Friday game, but I'm talking about the game last Sunday. They played the Raiders, the evil, hated Raiders. And by the time I left church, I saw on my phone that the Dolphins had won the game 20 to 13. So later on in the day, as I call up the highlight video that goes over like the 15 minutes of the game that actually mattered, and I saw uh, that the Dolphins, you know, maybe fumbled and lost the ball first, and that the Raiders scored first. And then uh, the the Dolphins couldn't manage to convert on a fourth and goal. And the Raiders got back to within one point. As I'm watching all of these things, and I'm watching uh, my quarterback throw interceptions when he really shouldn't throw interceptions, how much stress and strain do you think I was under? The answer is none. Why? Because I knew the outcome of the game. Because I knew how it ended. And so no matter how close it got, no matter how many mistakes the team made, no matter how precarious the game seemed... It didn't bother me. Because I knew the end, it changed the way not only that I watched the events that were happening, it changed the way I interpreted those things. Rather than wonder about what the outcome was, I was looking forward to say, well, how are they going to turn this around? Because I knew that they did. Why do I tell you football stories? Because God is giving his people a picture of what is coming in the future. Why in the world would he do that? Because he has called his people to do difficult things even now. He has talked to and called a weary and wounded and poor people to build a temple, to reconstruct the city walls, to be in the presence of people that hate them. And the question is, how are they going to do that? Not only difficult physical circumstances, but these are people that are not particularly spiritually strong by any means. How is this going to happen? And the answer is, they have to know the end. And knowing the end is going to change how they approach what they're called to do now. God has made precious promises to these people. And knowing that God is not only going to be faithful to them in their generation, but that God will carry on that faithfulness to future generations will matter in how they approach the task that he's given to them. And today, we're going to see the next three visions in this single night unfold. And the first one that we're going to see relates to the Spirit's power. 
the power of the Spirit in the lives of the people. And then we're going to look at the scroll's curse, and we're going to close with the sin being removed from the land. So that's kind of where we're headed today. Uh, The vision in chapter 4, certainly the longest, the most detailed, actually, of any that we've seen up to this point. So let's look at that illustration, that picture that he's given to open chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then there's a break in the middle that we're going to work through in a moment, but the image picks up again in verse 11. So go down to verse 11. Zechariah says, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees that are on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? So there are some things in here that are fairly familiar and some things that are definitely not familiar. First of all, Zechariah says a lampstand made of solid gold, the menorah, the thing that gives light, first designed and given to be in the tabernacle and then the temple, a solid gold lampstand. So that picture is not unfamiliar. And in fact, if you look at the slide that's going to come up now, uh, that is kind of the quintessential golden menorah. In fact, this one is made by the Temple Institute in Israel. Some of us who were there a couple of years ago actually saw this. This is in a plaza that is in the Jewish quarter of the old city as you're on your way to the Temple Mount. This, by the way, being made in anticipation of a rebuilt temple. This particular golden lampstand made of 45 kilograms of 24 karat gold. Weighs about half a ton. A lot of study went into making it as perfectly accurate as they could make it. So, so the people were familiar with the idea of a lampstand. They are fed by oil Oil that burns and provides light, light to work in the tabernacle, light to work in the temple, light that reminds them of the purity and the light that God has given them and called them to. And again, these lamps are fed by oil. No oil, no light. That was the celebration of Hanukkah. We all kind of remember that story. But if you run out of oil, you run out of light because the lamps have nothing to burn on. And as Zechariah looks at his vision of a lampstand, it is both similar and wildly different at the same time. Because the lampstand that Zechariah sees uh, doesn't just have a bowl for each individual lamp. It has a bowl on top of it that holds all the oil. And each of the seven lamps has seven lips or spouts on each one. In other words, each one has seven places to be filled. So there's this picture, not just of oil feeding the lamps, but of this continuing abundant supply of oil. And he looks to the right and to the left, and he sees two olive trees. Olive trees produce the olive oil that is the fuel for the lamps. So once again, the idea that there's a constant supply of what these lamps need to keep burning close on hand. Seven lamps, seven channels for for receiving that oil. Trees right there that produce the fuel for that oil. And then we see that there's not only two trees, but two branches from these trees. So from each branch or each cluster comes this continuing flow of golden oil. And that's kind of Zechariah's vision right there. It's not exactly how I would have drawn it, but if I had drawn it, it would have been a lot more stick figure-y, and that's not great. Uh, There would be even kind of more channels going to those lamps. Uh, But you get the basic picture. 
A lamp that is fed, and fed continuously, and fed abundantly with this never-ending, never-stopping supply of exactly what it needs to keep burning. Lots of pieces, but that's the picture. Now, the explanation is a little more difficult, but it takes on more difficulty if we forget where this is. If we try to just look at this on its own, standing by itself in a vacuum, then it becomes a lot more difficult to interpret what's actually happening here. But if we keep it within the context of these visions, it starts to become fairly clear to us. So Zechariah in verse 4 asks what they are. He says to the angel who talks with him, that angel that kind of accompanies him through all of these visions and explains them to him, uh, he asks the question, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? And Zechariah says, no, if I knew what they were, I wouldn't have asked. It's not in the text. That's my paraphrase. This is why God probably does not reveal things directly to me like that uh, because I'm snarky. Zechariah says he doesn't know what they are. And the answer isn't what we would expect, I don't think. He doesn't say, well, this means this, and this means this. Look at what the angel says. The angel said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become like a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. See, this vision communicates something to the people, but this vision is given specifically to encourage Zerubbabel. And as a reminder, Zerubbabel is serving as the governor of Judea during this time. Although he is in the line of David, the king, he is not king and he will never be king. The king resides far away over the Persian Empire. But Zerubbabel leads his people in a civic authority context here. And it was Zerubbabel and Joshua who were particularly called out by Haggai to complete the work of the temple. Uh, But there's a very real question on how that is supposed to get done. Uh, When Solomon built the temple, the first temple, that grand and beautiful structure that it was, uh, Solomon had a ton of resources available. Not only was Solomon tremendously wealthy, but David, his father, had begun collecting and preparing materials to build that first temple since before Solomon ever even thought of beginning that work. The preparations were in place. The physical resources were in place. Uh, There was a a military. There was a nation that was established. Solomon had all of those things going as far as building the first temple. These people have none of that. Uh, These people do not have any kind of physical security. Uh, These people do not have any kind of wealth to draw from. These people do not have really any kind of spiritual reserves to draw from. They are prone to discouragement. They are prone to disobedience. And when we understand that, the task that was given to them, the high calling that was given to them to rebuild the house of the Lord, the place of the Lord. When we understand all the struggles that the people in Zerubbabel and the leadership in particular faced, we can understand why it is so critical that the Lord says, this is the word of the Lord. It's not by might or by power that my temple or my city is going to be rebuilt. How is it going to happen? He says, it's by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The strength to do what God has called them to do is not going to come from them. It is going to come from the God who called them to do the work in the first place. Do you see that thread running through all of these different visions? That this is all the work of the Lord. The Lord knows. Vision one. The Lord protects. Vision two. The Lord builds. Vision three. The Lord purifies. Vision four. And now the Lord strengthens and the Lord enables. 
And if the Lord is the one who provides the strength for his people to do what he has called them to do, if it is God who is going to enable Zerubbabel to do the task that he has called him to do, then it actually makes a lot of sense when he says, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. What mountains figuratively stand in the way of the completion of this work? Poverty, hunger, discouragement, enemies that surround them. Any one of those things, by the way, should have been enough to kind of move the work off the rails, to stop it, to shut it down again. They'd already done that for 15 years. Any one of those difficulties would have been enough to stop the work once again if it was up to their own strength. But it's not. Before Zerubbabel, all those mountains, all those challenges will become like a plain, like a flat place, easy to traverse. And he, that is Zerubbabel, shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. That promise is reiterated. The work is going to be completed. And when that capstone, that top stone is placed, the people are going to rejoice. They're going to recognize that God has been faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. That's why he goes on to say, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He says, when it happens, you'll know. All the doubts, all the discouragement, on the day when Zerubbabel places that capstone in the temple and the people celebrate, then you'll know. You'll know that God was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And those who despised the small things, those who were discouraged by looking at this new temple when compared to the old one, those who couldn't see how this could possibly be done, those who couldn't see how God was possibly in this work are going to rejoice to see God's perfect faithfulness among his people. And so the overall picture is this wonderful promise that God is going to enable his people to do exactly what he called them to do and that God is going to be faithful to see the work completed. And if it's by his power, if it's by his spirit that is going to enable them to do what they were designed to do, then you look at this golden lampstand whose design and his function is to bring light and this ever-flowing source of oil that feeds that lampstand. It becomes clear that God's spirit is the oil that provides the power for his people's obedience. And as we come to the second half of verse 10 and on through the rest of the chapter, uh, the vision resumes. It's not a new image, and it's not just explaining the image. So we're going to call it that third part. We're going to call it the exclamation. It's going to take the themes that have been introduced, and it's going to move them further. Look at the second half of verse 10. It says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Once again, the idea of seven eyes, I think, is probably best interpreted the way we interpreted it last time, and that is it talks about perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, seven being the number of completion or fullness, the eyes being used to demonstrate wisdom, vision, oversight. So God has perfect knowledge and perfect understanding, and then Zechariah asks for clarification. What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And then a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. What are the olive trees? What are the branches or clusters that are continuously feeding this? And once again, the angel says, do you not know what these are? And once again, Zechariah shows remarkable restraint when he says, no, my Lord, because again, I would have inserted something very snarky about not having to ask if I knew. But the angel answers. And the final line in this chapter gives clarity 
but maybe not the specifics we would like. The angel answers and he says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Those branches are the two anointed ones, literally the sons of new oil, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And you say, well, that's not exactly helpful, but thank you. Well, let's think about the context. Remember, these visions aren't coming through large breaks in between. They are one after the other. And if you put this vision together with the one that has just come before, what do these visions surround? And the answer is two men. Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel, the governor. Two men that God had entrusted with significant responsibility. Two men who are playing a critical role in the life of the newly restored people. Two men who will be absolutely essential to the people's obedience, to the people's worship, to the people's right function as the people of God. Two men who minister in the strength of God for the sake of His glory. When it talks about who the two branches are, I think if you put it in the context of where we are in Zechariah's book, it becomes pretty clear. The two sons are those two men who are serving the particular function that God has called them to. But what about the two trees? Well, if you step back, you see that those two men actually represent two very specific and critical offices, we'll say, in the lives of God's people. One of those men is a son of David, Zerubbabel, in the line of David, the king, the ones that God had called to faithfully shepherd his people. The other one, a son of Aaron, the high priest who serves as the mediator between a holy God and sinful people. Standing by those offices of priest and king are these two men who represent those offices. I want you to keep that in mind because in a vision, or not in a vision, at the end of all of these visions uh, comes a symbolic act that joins those two offices. So just put that in your mind and we're going to come back to it next week, and it'll clarify it even further. And with that, we're going to move on to the next vision. The two visions of chapter 5 are short, and they are related. They kind of build off of each other, and they give two parts to the same reality. Um, What have we seen? We've seen that God has made some remarkable promises to his people, that God is going to physically and spiritually restore the nation. Uh, We've seen that the, the people have been promised physical restoration, and spiritual cleansing. They've seen that the power to obey is going to come from God's Spirit. The problem is still we have a holy God and a people who will sin in some manner and in some way. So the question is, how then does God deal with sin? Because God in His holiness can't just ignore sin. And so we move on to chapter 5, and it deals with the sins not only of the people, but of the nations as we move farther. And we're going to open this by looking at first the scroll's curse. And as I said, these next two visions are brief. There's no uh, kind of exclamation that carries on uh, the themes of it. There's just illustration and explanation, and it's fairly clear. So let's look at the illustration uh, that opens up chapter 5. Zechariah says, And again I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. That's the bulk of the vision. In the next verse, we're going to see that there's writing on the scroll. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. 
But, but that's essentially the vision. It's a huge flying scroll. And I didn't think that a picture on the slide would be enough to really capture the size of this thing. So um, my wife and kids and I went ahead and made a life-size scroll. So if I mentioned you earlier as needing help, come on up, I need your help now. And it appears that I've lost one of my ushers. So I'm going to have... Uh, oh, nope, there he is. Hi, Mike. I didn't see you. All right, so uh, Mike and Dave, just grab that metal bar there. You guys are kind of our anchor there. And then Matt and Zach, grab the edges of this and just kind of extend it that way a little bit so that people can get a sense of the size of this. All right, so this is 15 feet wide. I'm not going to have them go all 30 feet long because that would literally cover the entire middle section of the sanctuary here all the way back to where the offering boxes are. But you can picture something of this size flying through the air. Second service, it will go all the way back because we have lots of high schoolers to do the work and it won't block the camera and all that good stuff. So come back if you want to be covered with it then. But this is, this is the size of it. And again, spread all the way back to where the offering boxes in the center are. That scroll is that size with writing on front and back. Thank you, gentlemen. You've done a remarkable job. You can just set that down up here where we won't trip the worship team on their way back up. Well done. Thank you. Worthy workers. Why make a scroll that big? Why make a scroll with writing on one side and on the other? Why, why do it that way? Well, first, the, the flying and the size speak to the clarity. We'll get into the explanation of the words and the why in a moment, but just understand that when something is this big, it is done to be seen. It would be very, very difficult to hide this. In fact, uh, unless you can't see it on the camera, anybody in the building saw that there was something up here. That there was, it's impossible to hide something of this size. And the fact that it's flying through the air denotes that this is something that is meant to be seen and read and understood and that you can't hide from its presence. And so with that, let's jump into the explanation. What's the point? What's the meaning of this giant flying scroll? Look at verse 3. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely will be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it will remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. The explanation is that the scroll is a curse written on both sides. On one side, there's a curse against those who swear falsely. On the other side, there's a curse against those who steal. So why is it printed that way, and what does it mean? Well, first of all, uh, this is a callback, a reference to the law. When the tables of the law were given to Moses, they were written on the front and on the back. Uh, these two curses in particular deal with violations of the law. They deal with uh, the curse of stealing, violating the Eighth Commandment, swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, or taking His name in vain, we might say it, represented in the Third Commandment. So why those? Perhaps those were uh, common faults or failures among the people, but I think that the better understanding is that those are representative of the whole law. If you take the law, particularly the Ten Commandments, which summarize the whole law, and you put those into two halves, the Third Commandment and the Eighth Commandment fall right in the middle of those two halves. And so I think what you have here is a representative of the whole law whether that is the law against how you love God or the law against how you love people, anyone who violates these, it says, falls under a curse. And we know that to violate one law is enough to make you guilty of being a lawbreaker. 
Even James says, he who keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking how much of the law? All of it. You are either perfectly obedient or you are a lawbreaker. You are either perfectly innocent or you are guilty. This scroll goes out over the whole land and brings a curse on the guilty. This huge, clear statement that those who violate the law are going to be completely done away with, completely dealt with. This scroll dwelling, remaining in the house to consume it, both timber and stones, this perfectly all-consuming judgment that purges the land of its sin. Uh, And that is a very fit step to take in the trajectory of the visions. If God sees what is going on, if God protects his people, if God is going to rebuild his chosen city, if God is going to purify his people, if God is going to empower them for service, then he must deal with sin and he must deal with it rightly. And those who refuse to pursue God in faith, those who refuse to humble themselves and submit to the name of the Lord will find themselves under his curse. And that idea of God dealing with sin carries into the last vision that we're going to look at today. And like the flying scroll, it's fairly brief. It has only two parts. And this one isn't just the the curse that sin brings. This last vision uh, talks about the sin being removed from the land altogether. So let's look at the illustration uh, that closes chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. In verse 7, Behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And then down to verse 9, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. And the wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. All right, so let's make sure that we have a clear idea of the picture here. First, uh, there's a basket. The word for basket is ephah. It's a measure of just over 20 liters. This is kind of a standard size basket. It's actually pretty close to that measurement. Uh, Now, the basket that he sees has a lead cover. This is not lead. And it had a woman inside. There is no woman inside here. Thought about using a child. There were a number of reasons that wouldn't work. mostly because they couldn't sit still that long on the stage, but also because the symbol of what comes out of that basket is not exactly flattering, and we don't want to do that. So uh, the picture that is seen is of a basket, uh, a measure with a woman coming out of it and a leaden cover on top of it. And then that basket is picked up by women with wings like a stork and taken away to a land called Shinar, where it has a house, a pedestal built for it. And again, that is a bizarre image to see. We can get our mind around what it might look like. Sort of, you get the basket and you have women with wings and taking the basket away. Uh, But if we were left to come up with our own explanation for what that means, uh, no end to the weirdness. And there is no end to the weirdness. Go online. No, don't. If you were to go online and Google some of the uh, interpretations of this, they are wide-ranging, we'll say. But we don't have to do that because God has given us the explanation for what this means. Uh, So let's move on to the explanation. Let's go back to verse 6. After the angel says that this is the basket that is going out, he says, this is their iniquity in all the land. So the basket used as a measure is a picture of the iniquity of the sin of the land. This is the measure of Israel's sinfulness. 
Not only that, he says that there's a woman in the basket. And if the basket is the measure of wickedness, the woman herself pictures wickedness. That's what he says in verse 8. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket. So, so the basket's the measure of wickedness. The woman is kind of the personification of wickedness. And the idea that she has to be thrust back down, it's this active thing. There's a lead cover on the basket. She has to be pushed back down because uh, the woman doesn't want to stay in the basket. And again, we're not going to carry that any farther than we have to, uh, but there's a picture of this actively trying to escape. And if this is the measure of sin, and if the woman is the picture of wickedness, you get this sense that wickedness is always trying to burst out, always trying to break out, always trying to move out and infect and, con- and contaminate the people. And I kind of I appreciate that active picture of sin because sin is not passive. Uh, sin is not idle, just waiting for us to stumble into it. And you get that picture very, very early in the Scriptures. Uh, Maybe you remember back in Genesis 4. This is kind of where my mind went this week. In Genesis 4, uh, Adam and Eve have children, Cain and Abel. And their two sons bring sacrifices at the appointed time to the Lord. And Abel's sacrifice is accepted, but Cain's sacrifice is rejected. And Cain gets angry. And God comes to Cain and He says, uh, If you do well you'll be accepted or you'll be lifted up. But he says, if you do what's wrong, he says, know that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you. I picture from the very beginning that sin isn't dormant. Sin isn't passive. Sin is active. It is crouching. Sin is this ever-present threat that if you are not on guard, it will rule over you. The picture of wickedness that could at any moment burst out and overtake the people. Do you think that was a threat among these people? You bet it was. Won't that always be a threat? What about when the Messiah comes? What about when God is in the presence of the people? How do we know that sin won't just break out and you won't have open rebellion among his people once again? Well, because when the wickedness is carried away, it's not by Israel's doing. Israel doesn't just decide to clean themselves up and get better and stay that way in their own strength. It's God who appoints these two uh, messengers with wings like a stork to pick up the wickedness and to remove it completely from the land. And really interesting, they take it to Shinar, which we learned from earlier in Scripture, it's the land of Babylon. And so Babylon then becomes associated with sin. Uh, it, It is the place where wickedness is taken to. And not only is the wickedness taken there, but there's a house set up for it there. It says, what's the only house that we've talked about in this book so far? It's the house of the Lord. The idea that there's a place being prepared where God is uh, enthroned, exalted, worshipped. Wickedness is taken away to the land of Babylon where it too has a house built for it. And so Babylon becomes kind of this foil, kind of this antitype for Jerusalem, kind of this, uh, this picture of the opposite, a place where not only is it fit for wickedness, but a place where wickedness is exalted. And by the way, that picture carries over into your New Testament and Revelation as, gone, as John talks about what will come in the end, much more than we have time to get into today. But what's the point of all of this? That God is going to purify his people. We saw that in the vision where he dealt with Joshua the high priest. God is going to purge the land of sin. We saw that as the curse of that scroll goes out and those who refuse to obey are dealt with. And not only that, but God will remove the sin from the land altogether. That God will purify his people, that God will purify his place. 
so that he may dwell there and so that it might rightly then be called the holy land because the holy one dwells among a holy people. So that's where we're going for today. (laughs) Three visions, some of the most unique that we've seen, some of the most unique in all of Scripture. Next week, we're going to close the section that deals with kind of the, the night visions, but we have to ask once again why it matters. Why does knowing these things matter at all? Not necessarily why does God reveal his plans for the future in this way, but why does God reveal his plans for the future to his people at all? These are people with a rich history. A rich history of God's faithfulness to them, but a rich history of their rebellion. A complicated history of their continual stubborn response and God's faithful discipline in their lives. And from every human understanding, from every human logic, this can't work. There's no way that these people are going to be able to establish a temple and a city in these circumstances. There's no way that these people will ever be fit to have God call them precious like the apple of his eye. There's no way that these people will ever be fit to have God dwell in their presence. There's no way that these people will ever be fit to be seen as a kingdom of priests, as ministers, as conduits of the blessings of God to the nations. And so God gives them promises. Promises about what he will do in the short term. You are going to see this temple rebuilt. That'll happen within four years of this being written. But not only promises for right then, not only promises that will demonstrate his faithfulness to this generation, but promises that will reiterate his faithfulness to the coming generations, all the way to the eschaton, all the way to the end. Why does that matter to us? Especially if we are not Israel. Because this is our God. Because that same God who promised that his spirit would enable his people to accomplish their work has given us his spirit. And he has called us to work. That same God who has promised to cleanse us from all of our sin. See, where do they find their strength to obey in knowing what God will do? Where do you and I find our strength to obey in knowing what God will do? Where do we find the strength to do what's right uh, when everything around us seems wrong? Or where do we find the strength to do what's right when, let's be honest, doing right just happens to be the last thing that we actually want to do? We find strength in the fact that that same God has made promises to us. Promises to fill us with His Spirit. To equip us for His work. To seal us for the day of redemption. See, that same God who called and chose Israel, that same God who guarantees a remarkable, glorious future for her, has made precious promises to us. And he's left us with work to do until he returns. Three things for us to think about before we head out today. First of all, you and I had better get our minds around the power behind obedience. That principle, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How precious of a promise is that? How do we obey? It has to be through the power of God. In other words, uh, there's two sides to that. For, For one thing, you and I cannot say that obedience is too hard. You and I cannot say that I know what is right, but I simply cannot do it. 
In one sense, you're right. Obedience is hard. In fact, it's not only hard, it's impossible on our own strength. But God says that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That he empowers us to obey what he has called us to do. And either that is true or it's a lie. Now, you and I are quick to excuse that. We know that you have made us able to obey, and I would, except you and I just have to get around the fact that there is no except, there is no but. That God empowers us to do exactly what he has called us to do. And on the other side of that, we can not only fail by saying it's too hard and we're not going to try, you and I can try using all the wrong resources. Sometimes I know exactly what the right thing to do is, and I set my mind to accomplish it, but I want to do it on my own strength. And so at the end of the day, I wind up exhausted, frustrated, and ultimately failing, wondering why I can never quite get it right. Well, the fact is that sometimes we try to do the right thing in all the wrong ways. That our obedience doesn't come out of our own strength. And so we need to evaluate how we are doing what we are doing. How do I love my wife? Is it on my strength? Or through the power of God, how do I love my kids? How do I approach my ministry? How do I approach the work that God has given me to do in my workplace, in my neighborhood? Second, when you see it, you will know. I love that. I love the fact that God said, when you see this happen, you're going to know. All of those of you who doubted, who couldn't see how this simple thing uh, was ever going to turn into something that the Lord blessed, when you see God work, you're going to know. And you'll rejoice that God did it. Uh, what do we rejoice in? I wonder how many of us keep a record of God's faithfulness in our lives. What does it look like to see God work? Is it only in the huge victories, the miraculous provisions? Or are you and I so drawn to the need for God in every circumstance in our life that we rejoice when we see Him work in the small things. And those times when I don't lose my temper when I would have. Do we say, I did it, I did better this time? Or are you and I tuned enough to the grace of God to say, look what God did. He enabled me to respond rightly. I would encourage us to be a people who look for the faithfulness of God in our lives and then celebrate it together. And that leads kind of to the final one. What are you thankful for? Not just this week, but especially this week. How pointed is it? What are you thankful for? You know what I'm so thankful for? Uh, that, that sin that is so active, that is so cunning, that is so deceptive, that is so destructive, that I don't have to overcome it on my own that God through His Spirit has made a way of escaping temptation for now and that one day God will remove sin altogether. That one day I'll be fit to be in His presence without having the constant uh, ankle-biting pursuit of sin in my life. What are you thankful for? You know, as we head into this time of fellowship between services, I think it might be a great time as you're thrust into a social situation with people around you that you might not know. Great icebreaker. Talk about what you're thankful for. As believers, there should be no shortage of things to go through. All right, let's pray together. Lord, you are good. You've always been good. You've always been faithful. Lord, you will continue to be faithful to your people. And so, Lord, uh, even as Israel waits for their time of purification and restoration, Lord, we wait. 
We wait for you to come to bring us to be with you. But Lord, as often and as long as we wait, we know that you've given us the power and the ability to obey. Not for our sake, not for our glory, not in our own strength, but in your strength, for your sake, and for your glory. Lord, purify us as a people so that we might preach your gospel to the nations. We praise you and we thank you for all of these things, for it is only through the strength of Christ that we accomplish anything of eternal value. Amen.